Welcome to the Mini Break, your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, April 24th. It was such a busy last week in the professional tennis world that we decided to offer two mini break podcast episodes to all of you tennis fans here on Monday to help catch up on all of the action on part one. One of today's podcasts, you can hear myself and Tennis.com editorial producer David Kane break down everything that happened at last week's WTA 500 level event in Stuttgart. That means offering our thoughts on a fantastic final between Sabalenka and Sviantek, as well as our thoughts on who else stood out from that field in Stuttgart. Of course, here on part two of today's show, we want to offer our thoughts on everything that happened on the ATP tour side of things. That, of course, means breaking down title defenses from both Carlos Alcaraz and Holger Ruhl. Breaking down the funkiness that was a Dushan Lajevic title run this past week as well. A jam-packed part two of the show for all of you listeners to enjoy as I am once again speaking with our dearest of friends, David Kane, here on today's podcast. Of course, before we get to it, a massive shout out, as always, to our friends at Tennis Point for their support of this show. Remember, for all of the latest and greatest equipment at the lowest prices, just head to Tennis Dashpoint.com today. When you get there, make sure you use our promo code CR15 with your first purchase. Not only will you let them know we sent you there, you'll get 15% off all sale items, free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75, and best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls, Tennis Dashpoint symbol, not the spelling, Tennis Dashpoint.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, let's get to it. Here is part two of my conversation breaking down down everything that's happened in the past week on the ATP and WTA tours with the one and only David Kane. Welcome back, everyone, to our recap of a busy week on the ATP and WTA Tours. Of course, if you listened to part one of this show, you heard myself and David Kane break down a busy week in Stuttgart. Of course, Iga Sviantek emerging as the champion there over Arena Sabalenka. If you want to hear our thoughts on that final as well as everything else that unfolded, just scroll down on your mini break podcast feed. Of course, here on part two, as I alluded to in the intro, we want to address the three ATP events that unfolded last week. That said, before we do, A, joining me once again for part two, as he did for part one, our dearest friend, Tennis.com editorial producer, and of course, essentially co-host of this mini break podcast, David Kane. We got some breaking news. On Jabur, defending champion of Madrid, out following that injury she sustained in Stuttgart. That means a thousand points going to fall off of her ranking. She will drop pretty precipitously, I believe, down the WTA rankings. Yeah, in fact, I believe she is down to number seven from number four. But again, you know, now to get that climb back up, she'd have to. Cl- climb what I think it's an 800 point gap between her and Garcia now at number four I mean DK your thoughts on the the impact of this news I mean Iga didn't just hit me with her car apparently she hit on (laughs) Shapur as well this is just buckle up folks this is a bit I'm gonna be taking through the rest of the season um (laughs) no I mean look this is bad news for Shapur I mean she not only won Madrid last year but she made the final of Rome 
you know, while she is someone who is not defending Wimbledon final points, which would have been like totally cataclysmic, she's defending a tremendous amount of clay points. So, you know, this is really bad news for someone who is seemingly, you know, working her way back into form and, you know, is certainly someone who was beloved by the uh, tennis cognoscenti, you know, someone with a tremendous amount of charisma. The fact that she was able to deliver a really heartwarming, you know, post-retirement speech to the crowd after retiring, not typically something that you see from someone who, you know, has to retire three games in, just goes to show how popular she's become. And it's just going to be a shame to not have her on court for the next, at least the next couple of weeks. Hopefully she's healthy in time for, for Rome. But when you talk about something like a calf tear, you start to wonder, you know, is Roland Garros going to be, in jeopardy, you know, it, will she prioritize that and skip Rome as well? And if she is, that might even be her top 10. It might even be the top 10 ranking at that point. Well, the low-hanging fruit, I don't know how to spin this positively. She has no points to defend at Roland Garros. She lost first round last year. So if she can get back and healthy for that event, has the opportunity to certainly pick up a healthy chunk. But yeah, it's such a shame because she was playing well in Charleston, because she was playing well again in Stuttgart, and it felt like she was starting to regain her form following injury. And yeah, again, now you have that momentum suspended. Yeah, I mean, this goes into my sort of hypothesis about players sure. like Shabor, like Andreescu, who don't necessarily rely on consistent patterns, who do a lot of improvising. They tend to get injured more often. And I think that's what we're seeing with, I mean, that was certainly the story of Jabor's career before this breakthrough. Someone who was really rarely able to string together several months in a row would get injured, have to retire. We're seeing the limits of an elite schedule on her body, unfortunately. And so until she's able to figure that out, this may just be the reality for her, just sort of, you know, the idea where we enjoy her when we can and when she's playing her best and not necessarily expect, you know, top two level or certainly top two consistency from Shabord, because I don't know if that's something she's physically capable of. Yeah, and again, so many points to defend. And with the margins being as thin as they are at the top of the women's game, you're right, she could fall out of the top 10 pretty quickly, and then you're playing catch-up the rest of the year. Now, she doesn't have that many points to defend until that U.S. Open final, so certainly some low-hanging fruit in Canada, in Cincinnati. But it becomes the Bedosa problem. Of now you're yeah, getting tougher exactly. draws. Exactly. Yeah, and you're chasing. And everything yeah. just becomes a little bit more difficult. And so, yeah, certainly we'll feel the impact uh, of Jabir's absence in Madrid. And that event will be something we focus on more tomorrow with a very enjoyable guest. I know all of you Crack Rackets fans will enjoy that said. It's on Jabir. Yeah. <laughs> It's actually the uh, manufacturer of the Ega Porsche, since we're going to run with that bit all, all right. year long. <laughs> yeah, since we're just going to really double Do a little forensic investigation. I was going to make a joke and say, no, that's actually I'll, – I'll let X person who I was going to make a joke at the expense of do that interview since that's right up their alley. But we're going to leave that person unnamed, and we're going to transition now to our thoughts on the past week on the ATP Tour because, again, we had three events unfold and this similar theme – defend your title. We saw two young rising stars defend titles for the first times in their careers in Carlos Alcaraz in Barcelona, in Holger Runa in Munich. Let's start with Alcaraz. Oh my God, DK. He, I mean, he just lapped the field. He was that much better than everyone else in Barcelona. And, you know, you look for Alcaraz who ultimately knocks off CT Pass in the final 6-3, 6-4, Two and two over Evans in the semis, six and four over Davidovich Fokina in the quarters, gets straight set wins over RBA, Nuno Borges as well. It does feel worth mentioning that 
Shout out to Barcelona. Outside of Francis Tiafo losing first round to Emil Roussevori, 15 of the top 16 seeds all made the round of 16. Obviously, it was unfortunate that Yannick Sinner pulled out of that match versus Lorenzo Musetti because it would have been really fun to watch those Italians go head-to-head for the second consecutive week. But we got to see the best face-off against the best in Barcelona. And my biggest takeaway coming off of it is that Carlos Alcaraz's best on clay courts, when healthy, looks as good as anyone else's to me. I mean, I would certainly even extend that to hard courts at this point. I think that Alcaraz is just, you know, bigger, faster, stronger, that Daft Punk song (laughs) in that order. I mean, this is, I think, going back to why I was reticent to really, you know, put Stefano Tsitsipas in sort of the top two conversation, because now that he's up against a player like Alcaraz, you know, it was fairly decisive. I mean, you could look at the difference perhaps between an Ashvantek Sabalenka three and four and an Alcaraz Tsitsipas three and four. I don't know if it was as close in Barcelona. I think it just was a testament to how much better Alcaraz's best can be and even how much more impressive it is. I mean, he just, when he's playing well, it looks supernatural, to be, to put it quite frankly. Yeah. So I don't think... I still think the Barcelona final was a good match. And let's be clear, Tsitsipas went up an early break, right, in that match, uh, early in the first set to go up 2-1. But did you doubt? No, no. And that's yeah. what I was going to... That's exactly the point to get to. And from a pattern perspective, I do think it's worth pointing out, and I've tried to emphasize this as much as possible in relation to my thoughts on Tsitsipas' game, because I have always been Tsitsipas hesitant in terms of just buying stock of him as an unequivocal tier one guy. Now, I think slowly you, I've warmed to that position. You've been a Tsitsi skeptic? <laughs> Part two, you're still firing, my friend. Let the record show. Um, I have been a Tsitsi skeptic because the one-handed backhand on a quicker surface, the return has just been a problem. It's a discernible weakness in an era where discernible weaknesses are the kiss of death at the highest levels of the game. For and sure. I do think... To Stefano Tsitsipas's credit, what is also the name of the game? You have to have weapons. You just have to be able to end points on your terms to be one of the best men's tennis players in the world. And the Tsitsipas serve forehand combination is as potent as any serve forehand combination we see on the ATP Tour today. And you look for Tsitsipas this season, he's top five in hold percentage through the first four months. I thought he was extraordinarily effective in imposing his game, in imposing his first serve, his first forehand throughout the course of the week in Barcelona. And I think the heaviness of that ball on this surface is just so difficult to deal with. He takes time and space away from you so so fluidly on this surface. And again, where it is a little bit tougher to recover, difficult to deal with the weight of his shot because you don't have your feet fully under you. I think his ball is that much more effective. I also think he's a really good mover on this surface. I actually think he's faster as a mover on clay than he is on hard courts. One of the few guys you'd say that about, you know, he only lost one set on his way to uh, the final. He, you know, the Musetti match got a little funky in the semifinals, but prior to that semifinal, he had yet to be broken. Uh, in Barcelona, had a clean sheet through his first three games. I think he's really, again, I think he's capable of playing elite first strike tennis, even on this surface. But you could just tell, like, anytime Tsitsipas tried to hit into the Carlos Alcaraz backhand with an inside-out forehand, it or just anytime Carlos Alcaraz found the Stefano Tsitsipas backhand, I should really say, the point was over. 
because Tsitsipas just could not do enough on that backhand wing to hurt Carlos Alcaraz, to take time away from Alcaraz. And the moment you give Carlos Alcaraz even a split second to reset things and get back to neutral, he's now in control of the point. He now wins the point. And the difference between Tsitsipas and Alcaraz, I thought in this match, was really simple. When Tsitsipas hit the ball deep into the Alcaraz backhand corner, Alcaraz was able to provide enough depth, enough pace, enough variety, whether it be via drop shot, whether it be via changing direction with his drive, that he was able to keep things at neutral. When Alcaraz found the Tsitsipas backhand, Tsitsipas left something short, and Alcaraz just tees off from there. And like sometimes tennis is as simple as as you make it out to be. And it was just like the heavy top spin of Carlos Alcaraz was just a nightmare for Tsitsipas to deal with. I mean, did we not see this movie for like 20 years between Nadal and Federer? Yes! I mean, obviously it, to like a exactly. lesser extent, but we know what ha- we know what happens. I mean, I think Tsitsipas was talking about, you know, the importance of wanting to preserve the single-handed backhand and how he, he can make his more diverse and, you know, maybe not go for as many winners because it's not able to, you know. We've seen... In the last two decades, other than Federer, the only player to really consistently deliver great one-handed backhand tennis is Stan Wawrinka, and even he wasn't able to do it week in, week out, but he had the strength that a Tsitsipas and I don't even think a Musetti possesses. And so I think that's – this is going to be a very interesting decade, I think, for the the single-handed backhand on the men's tour. I wonder if this is the decade that, you know, definitively kills it because I think we've been close and I think we're going to have some – you know, runoff of players inspired by Federer maybe coming up and with a one-handed backhand. But I think to compete with a Carlos Alcaraz's weight of shot, to have any limitation or any kind of hindrance in, you know, absorbing and redirecting pace, that left hand is going to do wonders. And to not to be already, you know, it's like literally trying to beat Carlos Alcaraz with one hand time behind your back. Yeah. And I do think it's worth talking about the Alcaraz side of things. Is there any player more dangerous with time on his hands than Alcaraz right now on the ATP Tour? The answer has to be no. It's just unbelievable. If he is able to get his feet set, you're just f***ed. I don't know how else to describe it. And I think the single most dangerous thing in all of tennis right now is Carlos Alcaraz loading on a shot on the ad side of the court. Because if he is loading on that forehand wing, he can go anywhere. Inside out overwhelm you into that backhand corner inside in force you on the full sprint and now his next ball is a forehand to the open court he can play the drop shot as well if you give him enough time and that's why as your opponent again particularly on clay you're just f***ed because if you have you you have to guess because if you're just waiting for him to hit the ball you're not going to have enough time to get there and the problem in guessing is that he's so unpredictable and can do all three of the things you want to do with a forehand in that ad side corner inside out, inside in, drop shot, that, you know, you got a one and three, you know, a two and three chance of guessing wrong. And on clay, you can't recover quick enough to track that ball down. And so like the recipe for success on Carlos Alcaraz has always been so abundantly clear to get back to that term you used. The weight of his shot on this surface is just unbearable. And the kick serve to set up the first forehand where again, he can just do anything he wants with it on that ad side. It's already an elite combination. I do think he's driving through his backhand better and better, and I think he had no problems with that against Sefano Tsitsipas. I do think Carlos Alcaraz, if there's any Achilles heel, 
It's that he can be a little bit one speed dependent. His solution to everything is to hit through it. And yet, because this surface rewards variety in such a pronounced way, he incorporates more variety when he is on this surface. He incorporates more angles as opposed to just trying to blitz through things the way he will on hard courts. Not that he can't still do that here on the clay, but like there's a reason so much of his success when he was 17, 18, started in clay court challenger events. There's a reason going into last year's French Open. Yes, he lost in the quarters to Zverev, but he was already on that short list with, you know, it went Nadal, Djokovic, small gap. But Alcaraz was already third on that list, and given Alcaraz, uh, given Nadal's health concerns, given the lack of f- just success we've seen from Novak Djokovic thus far, I'm not saying Alcaraz has supplanted both of those players into the top spot. But as we alluded to on the hard courts, and as you alluded to to start our discussion here on Alcaraz, we all have eyes, David. Like. He's just on the level. He it, It's like those are when those three are playing their best. I love Yannick Sinner as much as the next. But those are the three best players in the world. Look, I mean, I would have to disagree a little bit because I do think Holger Runa is pretty dangerous when he has time on his hands. But when I say that, I'm specifically referring to his Twitter account. So maybe that's not exactly <laughs> the right discussion to be having right now. I do find he generates quite a bit of pace. This? Time on arena. his hands on the court. Yeah, yeah, no, no, for sure. I mean, listen, I yeah, mean, yeah. the way— no, Again, the, <laughs> part two, you're firing. It's out. I love it. <laughs> yeah. so, had that one had that one bubbling over, but I think, yeah. I mean, with, again, talking about— I think for me in, in modern tennis, weight of shot trounces everything. And I think even if we look at the tendency to try to hit through problems as a negative, I think for Alcaraz, and I think just in general— you know, that kind of energy wins slams. You know, we're not dealing with someone who gets passive in, you know, in intense situations. This is someone who's continuing to go for it for better or for worse. And he's winning the vast majority of his matches as a result. So I think for him, and again, I think he's someone who is accentuated by the clay, not buffed by, not um, not diminished by it. And it's just going to make him better and better over the next couple of weeks. And I do think that match to Zverev Roland Garros would not be one that he would lose again. You know, this was that was his first big slam where he was looked at as a favorite to win it and maybe came up just a little bit short. I think if he's able to stay healthy for the next month, this is the prohibitive favorite to win Roland Garros. And I think we could say that more confidently now than we ever could, especially given both the injury concerns of Nadal and Djokovic. He didn't lose a set, DK. Played one breaker against Davidovich Fokina. And it's not as though it was a cupcake schedule. Again, he got top 30 guys in RBA and Davidovich Fokina in a Dan Evans who played really freaking well last week. Clay and court specialist Dan Evans. Yeah, exactly. And then in the final, you play a Tsitsipas who's made a French Open final, who's won a thousand level event on clay courts, who does have as effective of a serve and forehand as you'll find on this surface. And yet, not only did Alcaraz match him in serve forehand potency, he beat him at the other stuff as well. He volleys well. He moves well. There's a relentless positivity. And I guess this, well, I want to talk about some final things in Barcelona because there were some relevant results and we'll rapid fire through it quickly. But it is interesting in making the dichotomy and the personalities between Alcaraz and Runa. It's just like the relentless positivity of Carlos Alcaraz versus like, I don't know, the relentless monologue, the relentless ups and downs and sighs and swings of Holger Runa. Like, I, I actually do think Holger Runa is way more personable 
in the sense that if you've played tennis, you have felt like Holgaruna on a tennis court before, where you just want to swear at everything around you. You, you want to just curse the world, and you're so disgusted with everything that you're just trying to grind your way through just that next thing and just be like, get me to the changeover or get me off of this court. At the same time, then something goes your way, and now it starts flowing once again. Like, again, you can just feel the emotions of Runa in a way that Alcaraz is just, I don't want to say robotic, because I don't think that's genuine. I think it's a little disingenuous, but I don't know. It's just a fascinating dichotomy, DK. I didn't ask you a question there, but do you care to comment? I mean, I'll say uh, to just comment on the, the the perception of Rune. Maybe it's yeah. because I've watched a lot of Yulia Potensiva matches, but I just <laughs> feel that like the whole Garun of it all feels very overblown. Like, I don't know, maybe it's just a lot of like, you know, pearl clutching ATP watchers who are just not used to this kind of piss and vinegar to, you know, for lack of a sure. better term. I think you're just, you know, he's he's a guy who's really competitive and really wants to win and, you know, He's young and has a bit of a baby face. And I think maybe that's sort of the dichotomy that people are struggling with, like because he seems young and cute, but like maybe they they when they see him act out and be brat, it's easier to label him as a brat because he looks so young. Mm-hmm. Whereas like Alcaraz is so much more con- you know, mature looking and poised and doesn't make those sorts of um uh, histrionics on court, but I still, I don't know. I, I point me to, you know, obviously there was the, the Roland Garros match against Rude where he tells his mother to leave the court in a fairly aggressive manner. But I think in general, it's just sort of crankiness that we're taking sure. issue with. And I don't know if it's really worth, I think were Alcaraz not so poised and were the ATP not a tour that was, is that seems to really put a premium on poise, whether it's better in a doll, that effect, Maybe we wouldn't be. I don't think the WTA equivalent of Holger Rune would be really re, would really even be registering because I don't really find it to be a big deal. But that said, I think it's important that we have that contrast because it's going yes. to be what makes that rivalry interesting because these are the two youngest, most, you know, two of the best guys on tour right now. They are, you know, you again, the ATP could not have set up a better feeder system if they tried. They have, you know, Federagon. Novak and Rafa with their injuries, you know, certainly on the back half of their career. And they have two guys coming up right behind them, ready to take their spot and ready to compete with them. And I think that's, it's been long overdue, but they finally have it all set up and they, they certainly couldn't be happier right now. Trivia question. Three teenagers in the ATP top 100. Can you name all three? Oh no. Um, <laughs> this one is of the, David, David Kane, yeah. ATP reporter. Oh boy, because I don't even think one didn't one of them just turn twenty two. So like, aren't no, we talking about like two are easy? It's uh, I mean, two are guys we've already mentioned here. Obviously, Alcaraz and Runa; those are the first two. Right. Okay. The I was, third I is one of them be the, just turned. Yeah, yeah. The third is going to be the tricky one. Oh God. Um. I believe in you. Do you want nation of origin? Sure, that would probably help. France. Um. I feel like I know it, but I'm not like. Sometimes you accuse me of acting like a real Luca von Aschel. Um, oh, yeah. I don't, that's funny. I don't even think of him as French. I think I thought of him as like Swiss. <laughs> that's funny. I, think that's I didn't even realize he was French. Oh, that's not great. Oh, yeah, that's true. He was born in oh, he's got, he's got the Coco age. He was born yeah, in 04. That's the last. Oh, There's three teenagers <laughs> right now, and it's crazy that two of them are in the top 10. That's just, that's the perspective I would. Two in the top ten reigning Masters champions, you know, one is a reigning champion. champion. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. No, absolutely nuts. And so 
yeah, it's something just, we again, didn't think that the ATP was capable of producing exactly. teenage champions. And I know we've kind of grown accustomed to it, and I feel like we're not glorifying and celebrating what these two are doing to the extent of how rare it really is, particularly in this era. But I mean, I've said it before: Alcaraz not eliminated from the goat discussion. And I'm going to say it for the first time, DK. Are you ready? <laughs> is it time to say it? Say it. I don't think we can eliminate Holger yet. I don't think we can do it. I think he's got to stay on the board. I can't believe I'm saying it. I Last week, I elevated him to tier one status. It was a formal ceremony. I don't. I think I asked for a sound effect, although I don't remember if I put the graphic there up for Westoff or not. But he was officially elevated to my tier one. <sighs> This is a big deal here on this podcast, DK. I don't say this lightly because not eliminated from the GOAT discussion is something we hold with reverence here we on do. this show. We do reserve it. I think it's, I right think, now. it's really only yeah. Iga at, uh, and, and Alcaraz, at really yeah. the only two that we we uh, Well, no, we Sinner's in, in his final year of eligibility. He's got to win a slam this year because Federer right. won his first at – Yeah, Fair so enough. he's still alive. Yeah, yeah. We, we said our goodbyes to Felix Ogier-Aliassime at the end of last season. was devastating. Jerry Shane still holding strong. I don't know if I've seen it. I mean, Von Asch is ranked higher, so maybe he does have. No. You know what, Jerry and Luca, you have been. El- no, you're not eliminated yet. I would give Von Asch at least till the end of next year and probably yeah. Jerry Shine the end of the year after. So we're, are, I mean, are we agree? Holger not eliminated? Are you with me? Uh, I just I don't know if I see 20, but I definitely like see like four. And you got to get to I, four to get to 20. I would feel more confident in this if Holger had beaten Rublev and Monte, Monte Carlo. That sure. felt like a yeah. really winnable match. He was certainly up. I, I thought the match was over <laughs> and, and it, oh boy, it wasn't. Um, so uh, that's really the only thing that gives me pause because technically he's as solid, if not more solid than Alcaraz in many ways, just from a technical perspective. Obviously Alcaraz is so much stronger, can probably do so much more on court, but I think just as a ball well, striker, I don't even know if that's true. Like, Holger could kind of do – I agree with you. I was hesitant at first, but then I thought about it. You're right. Like, Holger can do more things. Now, they're not as potent as the things Alcaraz does. Yeah. But he can do more things. Like, Alcaraz is an exclamation point and Holger Rune is a period. Perfect. <laughs> yes, that's exactly it. Or it's like – it's a bulletin list for, for and, like, Aruna. You're like, drop shot, backhand. And Banash is a question mark. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we're just jumping around. Since we're doing Holger, let's do Holger now. Comes back, is hitting lob forehand, slice forehands, hurts his shoulder, you know, wins the first set against Botic van de Sinschkoop, but then hurts his shoulder in that second set. You could tell it was seriously impacting his ability to hit forehands. It actually forced him to hit more backhands on the ad side corner. And I think if there's any silver lining coming out of this match, other than the fact that he found a way to freaking win it, 7-6 in the third, fight off four match points on Botic's serve for the match three different times, was broken three different times. It was a disaster for a man two days my senior, but we'll get to that in a second. For Holger to win that match, and again, the drive he showed on the backhand, the drop shots, the slice forehands, chip and charging, the serve and volley, I think he's a remarkable mover on this surface. I think he moves as well as in Alcaraz. I do think he has that elite twitchiness. I also think he can snap through a ball with elite pace. He can play with short angles. He can incorporate the drop shots. He's already become a better volleyer. And again, he wants to use his forehand as his definitive weapon. I don't think he needs to because his backhand can be that good. 
down four match points with one and a half shoulders. Holgaruna wins this match, DK, especially coming off of a week that saw him up 4-1 in the third on Rublev in Monte Carlo. And to come back and win this match in the fashion that he did, I mean, two-week runs like this are significant. And Holgaruna put together a real like the sort of two-week run that perhaps elevates a 19-year-old into not eliminated from the goat talk discussion. On top of everything else, he's already done. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly not out of the Hall of Fame discussion. I think that's yeah. probably I mean, a significantly no lower bar than the, than the goat discussion. But I think with um, and we're joking look, think, around people who are taking this too seriously. I can hear people right now being like, "Are you seriously saying Holgaruna's the goat?" And it's like, no. I, I saw dear sweet Gilbert Gross get like yeah. assaulted on Twitter about the I idea know. that Alcaraz is potentially a better player right now than Djokovic is right now. That are you saying that Alcaraz is better than the GOAT? It's like that's not that's why he's the coming question. on the show tomorrow to talk about the it. Do you want to right now? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I'll, please. I'll make the case for Gilbert anytime. Yeah. But um, listen, I think for. I would probably be a lot more impressed if it was a different opponent and we can talk about him later. But I think the fact that. Runa was able to shake off the really, I mean, I chuckle at the tweet of like, look at me last week, Modich. I was doing side to the exact same thing. And then I won this title. You too can be like me. I mean, but he, he's not wrong. I mean, he had a very mental okay. loss. Hold on. I'm Rubai. sorry to cut you off. What a heat check. Like, I cannot believe he sent that tweet. If the mini break is supposed to be the biggest storylines, results, and controversies, Holger Runa on Twitter. Like, credit to your joke, the person who's most dangerous with free time is Holger Runa because then he fires up the tweets. That's just a heat check. Like, unbelievable from Holger. Look, we don't know at any given time who is the one tweeting and liking from his account. We've heard it's perhaps sometimes it's his mother. We've heard sometimes it's a social media manager. But I, I do feel inclined to think that I would hope that's Holger because otherwise that's a real poetic license to be taking that, that kind of attack on Twitter to be tweeting one's own opponent from the perspective of you, Holger Runa. So I, I would hope that he tweeted that, but it was it was a wild thing. I saw the screenshot before I saw the actual tweet and I thought that it wasn't real. So we'll take that with what you will. But um, the fact that he was able to shake off a very mental loss to Andre Rublev, a match that I fully expected Runa to walk away with, even before he was up 4-1 in the third, and then win, defend his title, which he won via retirement last year, which was sort of like a tough way to win your first title when people are, you know, were wondering when he was going to break through. He finally breaks through, beats fair of that week, and then, you know, doesn't really get the the victory that he was probably looking for in Munich, gets the same opponent, comes back down from 5-2, multiple match points, injured, did not want to lose that match, I think. And I do think that, talk about like, you know, weight of shot being something that wins matches, that kind of energy also wins matches. And so I think that's sort of, again, what we're seeing, what Alcaraz brings to the table and what Runa brings to the table being similar in their effectiveness, if not similar in their approach. And so I think for him to kick off this clay swing with a Monte Carlo final, a Munich title, you know, this is really effectively his first, you know, clay swing as a top player with not a ton to defend, barring his, you know, Roland Garros quarterfinal. I mean, this is going to be, this could be the summer of Holger, you know, if we're, if he continues at this sort of pace. And we've seen him string together weeks like this in the fall. And now we're potentially seeing him doing it again in the spring. Yeah. I mean, look, and to put the final bow, I suppose, on each of these guys, these young teenagers, you look for Carlos Alcaraz in his career thus far. Ridiculous, DK. He's 56 and 13 overall. Excuse me, they included uh, an ITF result. So he's 52 and 12 overall in his career. 
to start on clay at the ATP level. You look for Holger Rune now at the ATP level on clay courts in his career. He's 19-6 and six over his last 52 weeks. A bunch of ITF results included, so that's the number I'm going to go with. You look for him at the challenger level. He went 35-12. and 12. So then essentially against top 200 players in his career on clay courts, he's 54-18 and 18 as a teenager. That's elite levels of success for both of these players. I think you do have two defining clay court talents already establishing themselves, and you add a Yannick Sinner in the mix as well who's right up there in terms of clay court success, who beat Alcaraz in that Umag final in three sets last year, who has made quarterfinal at the French Open before. I think the race on clay courts is going to be really fun between these three moving forward. And you add in the fact that, look, Tsitsipas was right there in Barcelona. Like he, Yes, Alcaraz was better, but man, Tsitsipas played a really good week. I mentioned the wins he got already on this show. And, you know, again, I think, well, I used to think that Sasha Zverev was a pretty good clay court player. Obviously, he loses first round in Munich, but should he get healthy, regain that form? We've seen the level he's capable of playing on clay. And his opponents stop going to the damn bathroom. Yeah, exactly. Andre Rublev wins Monte Carlo, makes another final this week. He's proven to be very successful on this surface as well. This group is translating across surfaces. And I'm not saying that prior groups didn't do that because you can't – like we're not going to run through the entire history here. But it was like, you know, Rayonich was good on grass. Dimitrov was good at one of the four when he was healthy. Like you never knew what you were going to get from – Medvedev was really good on the hard courts but then was sometimes a little – I mean it's not fair to say that because Medvedev's currently in the prime of his career. So I don't think it's fair to use past tense for him, period. But it's just like this group of young guys – Sinner, Alcaraz, Runa, they're good everywhere already. And I know we're only two weeks, three weeks into this ATP clay court season, but God, does that bode well for the next decade? Yeah, well, I mean, if it's not now, when? I mean, Nadal yeah. and Djokovic are like combined 100 years old. Like, yeah. they, like someone needs, like, there Let me needs tell to you, be this idea. If you're idea. rounding, you'd round up to 100, not round down to 50. Yeah. Look, I mean, this is a generation that has to believe that they can win on all surfaces. And so they needed to prepare themselves in kind. And so maybe that's perhaps, you know, impacting or influencing that a little bit. The fact that, you know, these are guys who are competing for slams. And I think, you know, to the extent that we're, you know, talking about Holger Runa's histrionics, I think that the realer this gets for more guys, the more emotions we're going to see on court. I mean, it is very easy to keep your emotions in check when you only think you're capable of a certain result. And now you're just listed a whole bunch of them who could potentially win this title if if things hold and Djokovic remains injured and Nadal remains injured. I mean, that really, you know, yes, Alcaraz is really good and really great, but he's not, you know, totally invincible. And that is going to lead to a lot of stressful guys, perhaps in the second week of Roland Garros, depending on how things shake out. So I, for one, am looking forward to the chaos, but a, a chaos that is controlled in the sense that we're going to see perhaps a reliable a group of guys competing for this title, but it's going to be a very different group than perhaps we're used to as being people we would put in the conversation of winning a slam. Yeah. I mean, look, Holger Runa right now is a top 20 club sort of guy. He's top 20 in both hold and break percentage here in 2023. There's really only five guys you'd say that about right now. And in fact, statistically, I'm throwing out uh, Chilich, and there are five guys you'd say that about. Alcaraz, Medvedev, Sinner, Djokovic, Runa. I'm not saying those are definitively your five best players in the world, but if your argument is those are the five best players in the world, 
excluding a healthy Nadal. I'll hear it. Like, I certainly think the top four are the first four, and with how Hogaruna has started this clay court season and the transition on this surface, certainly no one has had a better start on clay than Holgaruna. And it's crazy to say that. Three of those players are 21 or, or younger, and that's what our top five has been through four months of the season legitimately. Now, I have kept you here for far longer than I anticipated, so I want to rapid fire through the rest of the takes on the ATP side on the clay court. Let's start with Barcelona, DK. I know we talked about Tsitsipas. Six? Would you put him six on that list? Seven, if he's healthy? Like, he's, you know, we earlier, I think we had who was our definitive top 10 after that first third of the season when we did our first third awards. And I think that pod holds up one of the few mini breaks that you could listen to a month later and still, I think, glean some information from. Like, I don't know. Where are you with Stefanos? Our top five is Alcaraz, Runa, Rublev. Nadal no, and Djokovic? Uh, no, I'm sorry. I, said I, I, I said I I still love you. That's again, deservedly so. It's an hour and a half into the recording. Um, I said Medvedev instead of Rublev, just on the benefit of the doubt, like through the first four months. But like, I right. guess oh, more based bro- on the first four months. It, it's I mean, more I guess, broadly, yeah. like, where do you put Tsitsipas on that list? I mean, in general, I guess yeah. I would put him behind both Medvedev and Rublev in terms of just combined mm-hmm. maybe Rublev a bit of a tie because obviously you know Andre won his first Masters Sitsipas made another slam final about equivalent in terms of results and achievements but I mean I would probably put Sitsipas ahead of both of those guys in terms of who I think is more likely to win the French so yay for him <laughs> like I don't know if that really means if that really increases his chances if I'm putting him ahead against a guy who's never made a Grand Slam uh, final and a guy who notoriously hates clay that I think that Sitsipas is more likely to win the French than either of those two guys. Cause I just think that, you know, we're talking about the X factor. And I think for someone who certainly wants to have X factor, it certainly tries to convince himself and others that he has it. I think, you know, when the rubber hits the road in these, you know, important matches, there was not any doubt for me that Alcaraz was going to beat Sitsipas. There was not any doubt for me that Djokovic was going to beat him at the Australian Open final. Until that starts to change, it's hard for me to really consider him to be a serious contender for these slams. So I think, you know, he's performed solidly, but he hasn't really – he's already a bit behind the eight ball compared to where he was last year, having won Monte Carlo for the second year in a row. So, you know, a bit on the back foot. Obviously had injuries during the hard court season after Australia – you know, he's just sort of narratively stuck, in my opinion. You know, for someone who wants to really write his own story, he's someone who ha- hasn't really figured out the ending just yet. Yeah. All right. Here's what we'll do. I figured out the game that'll make this go quicker. And if you'd like to expand on this player, just put the finger up. But I'm just going to ask you, coming out, you know, right now, heading into the rest of this clay court season, stock up, stock down, stock hold. Dan Evans. Hold. Yeah. Musetti. Up. I agree. Davidovich Fokina. Hold tentative think, hold. You'd like to say up, yeah. but it's more hold. If you're down lying, down after if you Monte say Carlo, up. hold yeah. after you know Barcelona. Francisco Sarundolo. I think up. Was he in Portugal? He he was in uh, Barcelona. He, he quartered Barcelona. Thinking of, no, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking of Juan Manuel Sarundolo. Yes. My bad. <laughs> Mixing up my Sarundolos. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, stock up, stock yeah. up. All right, and then last guy from the uh, last two from that. Rude. 
fucked up. That's mean. Um, yeah, it's rude. I guess. Yeah. Hold down. I mean, I mean, this look, this is someone who pulled the clay court season out of nowhere last year. He's someone who played badly in Monte Carlo and, and Madrid, you know, figured Not it out, out of nowhere because and- 2021 when everyone was playing Olympics he was picking up three straight 250 titles so it's not fair to say it was out of nowhere if you win three titles on clay in three consecutive weeks like yes it was a breakthrough but it wasn't out of nowhere no no I mean coming into the 2022 clay swing I expected him to run the table and he oh oh I see I in see Monte I see. Carlo and Madrid Got where it. he'd done well the year before and we're thinking oh god is this like you know is the are the wheels coming off the bus and then he makes the semis in, in Rome it. makes the final in at Roland Garros and you think, okay, this is what more of what I expected. And this is when I was coming into the clay season with him thinking he still has a lot of opportunities to gain points. Those opportunities are really starting to shrink as we head to Madrid. That's probably his, really his last chance between now and Wimbledon to, to really add to his ranking total. And we're seeing Medvedev move ahead of him at a time where, you know, Rude should really be outperforming him on the rankings. So, I mean, it's a, it's a shame, but you know, he's with someone who was able to figure it out sort of out of nowhere last year. So it could still happen. Oleg, uh, our, our our resident Casper Root expert, is still not totally panicked. So as as long as he's in a good place with him, I feel okay. That's all we need to hear. Cam Nori. Gosh, I haven't really thought of Cam Nori since I picked him to win the U.S. Open, which is not entirely true. I did a very nice line read with Cam Nori in Miami about, of all things, college tennis. You would have appreciated it. Yeah. Just right. did some some echo answering about what he liked about being on a team and all that stuff um, coming to a YouTube uh, channel near you. Um, look, someone with another tremendous amount of weight of shot, someone who could, I think, could perform decently on clay, but not someone who has really any X factor. You know, you talk about like Sitsipas struggling to get it. You just don't think of Nori right now in this conversation among the elite guys. And, you know, that makes a difference. Mm-hmm. No, I, 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 so it sounds like you're, you're a cell. Hold, I guess. Yeah, okay. Hold or sell. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that feels about right. Um, all right. As we move on, let's go to the Munich side of things. Fritz, semifinalist there, loses to Botic four and six, gets a three and four win over team, good three set win over Fucevic. Buy, sell, hold. I would say, I would say buy. I think he's, done pretty well in this clay sweet clay swing after not doing fabulously on hard courts like is you know making up for some some lost momentum there on a surface that no one expected him to do amazingly on yeah i think i'm buying too i kind of liked it the weight of his shot on this surface to get back that's the term that could have also been the title of today's show uh it's successful my two days older than me birthday brother bvdz botic i mean just crushed that sucked look i mean this is that was sort of what I was hinting to earlier is that, look, this is someone who retired from the Munich final last year due to breathing problems. We never really got the full story, whether it was breathing problems, some sort of, you know, anxiety. And now this is someone who, you know, loses a match from five to up four match points in what you could only describe as a choke against an injured, injured opponent. You know, this really is a big knock against his ceiling. You know, how far can this guy go when he's in big matches and important matches and gets really nervous? I mean, that's something he's really going to have to figure out. Yeah. I love the variety. I love the physicality. I love his game on this surface because he just has more time to get into his funkiness with the forehand. He spent way too much time hitting to the Holgaruna backhand wing. He should have just been ruthless, gone for the kill, play for that Holgaruna back forehand and say, I know you're in pain, but I want to win a title. So if you're willing to play, that's how you're going to have to beat me. And he just wasn't willing to do it. Um, that said, again, it's a good run to the final for him, no doubt. 
Um, last three names for you. Andre Rublev. Is this the first time in two and a half years you're buying Rublev stock or are you just holding? Probably say hold because I think if he had won back-to-back titles, that would have been more impressive. The fact that he didn't end up winning the final. Oh, well, but not like, you know, if you're putting, if you're trying to go from a top eight guy to a top four guy, I think this is a tournament that you probably should have won. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. Had he won this and made it two straight weeks, I would unequivocally be buying stock. Exactly. You're right. I'm holding but I'm willing to re-examine my position. If he makes like another quarterfinal run in Madrid and it makes it three straight weeks of this level of success and he beats maybe two top 35 players along the way before maybe the legs give out in a three-set loss to like an Alcaraz or maybe like a tight four and five loss to an Alcaraz. Yeah, then I think it's stock buy for Rublev heading into that French Open where you just think like, oh yeah, he should be getting to the quarterfinals holding seed and, you know, outside of Alcaraz – Nadal or Djokovic, if they're both healthy, is anyone playing definitively better than Andre Rublev right now? See, no, I want him making another semi or a final. I think okay. we're I'm I'm tired <laughs> to quote Kiki Palmer. The storyline has run stale when it comes to him <laughs> making quarter quarterfinals. I mean, this is someone who, yes, has been consistently fourth round quarterfinal guy. To really flip the narrative, he's someone who needs to now be winning final semifinals the way Sabalenka has. I mean, that's what Sabalenka's had to do week in, week out. And we're still feeling like, but when when is the the the, the floor going to come out from under this? We still don't really believe it. You know, Rublev has done for years a certain level of success and is just perhaps starting to flip that switch. And now I want to see it over and over again heading into Roland Garros. I accept that. Last two, the deuce, Dusan Lajovic, second title of his career, first since 2019. No, I'm just kidding. I just wanted to say shout out to the douche because that was a a, a well a well. Fought, I mean, he played lights out in Banja Luka, and just again, it's, talk about the one handed backhand dying dying breed. He got he gets away with it. He's in title town. Um, I did want to ask you about Miamir Kasmanovic. Do you have any definitive Kasmanovic thoughts? Except for the fact that on Twitter sometimes people call him Meow Meow, and I yeah. really like that, and I like his friendship with Kasper Ruud. Um, I mean, listen, I mean, Keksmanovic had an opportunity to beat Djokovic in Serbia last year, and he didn't. Yeah, sure. Lajevic did this year, and he did. That makes me almost think that there might be more to Lajevic than there is Kekmanovic, if you're asking yeah. me to compare Serbs. Um, it was an impressive week for him, the fact that he was able to get that win over Djokovic on home soil and then beat Rublev in the final. That was a, good, a very good result. I don't know how much... I read into it long term because again, now I need to see this again. And now for him, if he makes the quarterfinals in Madrid, that would be, you know, an impressive monumental result. for yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Again, he played really well this week. He's got real weapons. Physically a nightmare on this surface, has a little bit more time to get into his ground strokes. I mean, Djokovic did not play well in that quarterfinal loss. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I still think you're holding Djokovic stock. Like who cares? Now we get, you know, we still have plenty of runway for Djokovic to regain his form, right? I guess that's where we'll end today's conversation. What's your panic level if you're Djokovic, if you're in the Djokovic camp? I mean, I think short term, you should be nervous. I mean, I think there was sure. a lot of like aggressive um, non-panic after Monte Carlo that he's fine. He didn't play well in Monte Carlo last year. Look what he did. He managed to win the French Open or make the semis or whatever it is he did. I don't even remember at this point. Yeah, he made the court what semis or the quarters and lost in Nadal in that like million quarters. hour long match. Yeah, quarters. quarters. Yeah. Um look, I mean, 
it's different when he's just he he just wasn't playing well last year. This year he's got this seemingly elbow injury that doesn't really want to talk about or cop to. You know, we all have eyes. We see that he has like the compression sleeve on. We see he's not you know serving as big or hitting the forehand as well. So like that's just say it. <laughs> like I don't I don't or maybe there's no point in confirming it because we all know it anyway. But I think you know. I think in the short term, yeah, it, there's something to be worried about, you know, and, it, and it, den- it really lends credence to the idea that there's going to be sort of an open field heading into this Roland Garros in 2023. However, no, you shouldn't, you should never sell Nadal or Djokovic stock because I think this is, this has always been a long game with the big three guys. I think you, you ride that one out to the end. And if anything, you pick up where you, where, where you can, and maybe this is an opportunity to buy a little more, you know, for yeah, next year. No, exactly. If anyone's selling the stock of Djokovic, I'll take it. Happily, because I need to see someone beat him in three out of five sets before I believe it can happen. And, you know, again, who beat him? It was Nadal in that three out of five set match at the French Open last year. We didn't see him at the U.S. Open. And then then I shook forever. Yeah, he wins Wimbledon. (laughs) He wins the Australian Open. I got to see someone beat him to believe it. And so, yeah, I think that's where we can hold coming off of this week. I guess that's our stock hold here on the mini break. I think we covered everything that's happened over the course of the past week. And, of course, now we get to turn our attention to Madrid. You'll have simultaneous ATP and WTA action all week long. We'll preview that event tomorrow here on this show. What are you guys doing over at Tennis.com to cover all the action, DK? Oh, the usual. (laughs) We'll be be covering Madrid from home. I don't don't, know. None of us are on site, unfortunately, this week. So we'll just be uh, having some early mornings and early afternoons from our respective East and West Coast uh, locations. That's what I like to hear. And, of course, you can read it all on Tennis.com. You can find links to everything by following David Kane on Twitter, DKTNNS. I don't need to tell you that. His follower count, at least double mine. You're over the 10K club, right? I hit 10k. That's really all I cared about. It was, yeah. just, it was my it was my Anne Hathaway moment. It just it came before true. the ship goes down. Yeah, before the ship goes yeah. down, you got that K. Um, all of that in mind, DK, you can. Uh, I always appreciate you taking the time to join us here. You can always. There's always a place for you. You just tell me when you want to come on next. I, that's honestly at this point, I just feel bad texting. So I'm like, God, all I ever do is say, Hey, you want to come on the show? Because you're a fantastic guest, my friend. It's really the closest thing I'm getting to a you up these days, so I guess I'll take it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's leave it there, of course. A shout-out, as always, to David Kane for joining us. A shout-out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, who has, as always, what type of a job to do, DK? Oh, he does an editing job. Day in, day out. Yes, he does. Shout-out to him. Shout-out to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all that said, for the fantastic David Kane, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell our listeners? And that's... Ika Shvantik hurtling toward me in her Porsche. Yeah, ten, and nine, also the break. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> it's the break. Uh, I love it. We will see you all tomorrow. Thanks as always, DK. Das Vidania.